0: Let me pray. God, I simply ask that you would delight our hearts with your presence this morning. We should be people filled with joy. The world should look at us and envy the joy that we have in the midst of struggles and trials and difficulties and heartaches and hardships. Lord, we should be people who just beam with the goodness of our God, his love for us. So I pray that you would do that. It, it is a challenge, Lord, because it's easy to be caught up in the struggles. But I pray that you would fill our hearts with delight in who you are this morning, that you would sustain us and encourage us, that you would allow us to see the good, that we would set our minds on the things that are lovely and true and admirable and just and right and good that we would set our minds simply on Christ. Do that work in our hearts this morning, we pray. Amen. All right, hopefully you have your Bible open with me to 1 John chapter 3. We've been talking a lot here on Sunday mornings as we've gathered together how the children of God will actually look like the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We've been exploring this idea that Christians will live lives of goodness that will resemble the goodness of the life of Christ. And today we're going to continue that theme as we read on in 1 John. Today we're going to see even more clearly, I think, why John is very black and white about this particular issue. Why John believes with a real staggering conviction that Christians are going to walk in righteousness and live lives of holiness and refuse to practice sin. As we made our way through 1 John, I think I've been trying to make it just super clear that biblical Christianity, as it's rightly understood in Scripture, claims that those who are truly filled with the Spirit of God, converted, born-again Christians who have faith in Jesus, that they are a radically new creation. Of course, they still sin. We're not perfect. We acknowledge that. But as Christians, the expectation is that we will live lives where we bear the fruit of Jesus Christ on a daily basis, not intermittently, not randomly, not occasionally, but on a daily basis. And if you read your Bible, this concept really shouldn't be surprising to you, I think. We're not going to reach perfection this side of heaven. But we will make progress in that endeavor as we follow Christ. And that's part of the good news, my friends. Not merely that we've been forgiven of our sins, that we are saved from condemnation in hell. But that you are no longer a slave to sin. That you don't have to obey its commands any longer, that instead you can obey the life giving, free commands of Christ. And if we don't make slow and steady progress in this life now as we pursue Christ, then I think we really need to conclude it's not Jesus who has failed us. It's not as if his promises are not true or his provision is not sufficient. I think rather we should conclude that maybe we've not wholeheartedly surrendered our lives to him as Lord. As we seek to pursue him, we've not really put our hearts in that effort to the degree that we should. And so I hope that our text this morning will bear out the truth of these claims. So let's read 1 John chapter 3, just verses 9 through 10. John continues to write, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." We're going to begin to look at this concept of loving our brother and sister in more detail in the weeks ahead. But to begin with this morning, let me just say, John does not have perfection in mind here. Okay, Don't get caught up on verse 9 when it says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Don't get caught up on that. John is not talking about perfection here. His expectation is not that Christians will never sin now that we follow Jesus. We've dealt with that, I think, quite exhaustively over the last couple of months, particularly if you need a refresher. Go back to the video online on YouTube from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. But John does teach us that if we are born again, then it is impossible for us as Christians To have a disposition bent towards sin in an ongoing capacity. You cannot be a Christian and enjoy sin. I mean, maybe in the moment when it grips you, you think you enjoy it. But as a Christian, you cannot long for sin. As a Christian, you cannot enjoy sin. You cannot continuously indulge in sin. You cannot have a conscience That isn't repulsed and disgusted by sin. You cannot go on living a life that's defined by sin and ruled by sin. Now I'm going to explain in a moment why I think that's impossible. But let me say it another way. If you are a Christian, then you must hate sin. And not sin as this concept out there, but sin as it manifests in your life. You must repent of it. You must sincerely regret it. You must desire to be free of it. You must fight and labor to be rid of it. You must daily engage in the work of joining the Holy Spirit, putting to death inside of you what is sinful. And you must trust Christ to do this. You must work alongside of him as he brings to bear the fruit of the kingdom in your life, ridding you of sin. And one of the reasons why this is necessary is because this life is the training ground for eternity. This is where we are learning to become of sufficient substance to dwell in God's eternal kingdom in a way in which we will not be crushed by that weight of glory. And in God's perfect kingdom there's no room for sin. There's no opportunity for sin. There's no lust for sin. As one author I've enjoyed reading, says there's no place to sneak off for a quick sin. And so to be prepared for that place, God's making us the kinds of creatures now who can tolerate an eternity without sin. That's a staggering concept. If you like sin, you're going to feel quite deprived in eternity in heaven with God. And to be prepared for that reality right now, We have to crave the pure spiritual righteousness of God himself for which we are being prepared. So let me try and just be super clear here. If you call yourself a Christian, but you look at your life and you realize that your life has not changed very much since that day in which you first professed to believe in Christ if you've not grown in righteousness, if you've not become progressively more spiritually mature, if you don't hunger much for Jesus, if you don't have much interest in God's word, like Rick was talking about, if you've not seen a growing victory over sin in your life, then it might be time to acknowledge that you're not actually a Christian. And I'm not saying that to be mean, I, I just want you to understand that the power of Christ is transformational. That's what John is teaching us. And so you may do many Christian things, but if you're not progressing in holiness, it might be that the life of Christ is not in you. Or your life wouldn't be exactly the same today as it was before you supposedly gave your life to Christ. I hope with the rest of our time to kind of explain why I feel this same conviction very strongly like John does. Look closely with me at verse 9. It says again, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Here in this verse, you have a classic example of cause and effect, okay? Cause and effect. I'm sure you know cause and effect. It explains uh, what happened and the reason behind it, or what happened to produce a particular kind of outcome. So, for example, if I say, My dog is soaking wet because he jumped in the pool, you have in that sentence cause and effect. The effect is the outcome, that's the result, which is in this case that my dog is wet. And the cause for my dog being wet, as I'm sure you now understand, is that he jumped in the pool. So this is the kind of grammatical construction that we have in verse 9, actually twice over. If you're looking at the ESV, and I looked this up in, I think, six different translations. So it's roughly the same. One of them puts a period in the middle of the verse. But in any case, it looks a little bit like this. With the ESV, you'll notice three punctuation marks before the end of the sentence, the period at the end of verse 9. And so John has one thought that governs verse 9 that he states two different times in slightly different ways. And in both thoughts, first he gives us the effect, the outcome, which he then grounds in the cause. So look at it again closely with me. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. That's the outcome. If you're born of God, you cannot live a life that is ruled by sin. You cannot serve two masters. Both sin and God. And the reason is, look there, for, this is the cause now, the cause is for God's seed abides in him. God's seed is in you, therefore you cannot live a life ruled by sin. Then John repeats himself, this is the second half of verse 9. And he cannot keep on sinning. That's the effect again. You cannot keep on sinning, followed by the cause, because you've been born of God. Now, I think it helps to notice what John does not say. John does not say, Christians won't practice sin because they try really hard. If you've done that, you know it doesn't really work very well. John does not say Christians won't practice sin because they go to church a couple times a month. It's not what he says. John does not say Christians won't practice sin because they have a dusty Bible on their shelf. The cause for the holy life born out in the Christian is god himself god causes us to be born into his kingdom in other words it is the life of god himself alive in us that produces holiness in us because this is a work of god and because this is a work of god we should expect that christians will be radically different people or maybe we could simply say actually different people. Friends, this is why I keep saying that if your life does not actually look remarkably different as a Christian, then it may be that the cause is that you are not actually a Christian. You are not born of God. And again, that may sound harsh to your sensitive ears, it may hurt your feelings, but I'm confident that it's firmly biblical, sincerely. And and let me also be clear, I'm not bragging about the exceptional life of Grady. I'm really not. Hang around me long enough and uh, in time you will get um, an apology for something dumb I say or something dumb I do. The difference between me as a Christian and someone else is not grady. It's not that I try harder. It's not that I have more self-discipline. It's not that I'm more experienced or I have a better technique or I've tapped into some deep spiritual elusive truth that nobody else can grasp. It's not that I'm awesome in any way, shape, or form. The difference, if you notice it in me, is simply the presence of God. That's the only thing that sets me apart from anybody. That's the only thing that sets you apart from anybody. The presence of God producing in you the holiness of God. Christ living in the Christian heart is what makes the difference in the life of the believer. And the presence of God is not a power that can be faked. It's not a power that can be synthetically created or conjured up by mere human will or human effort. Christians are people who look different because God makes them different. Because God makes them holy and righteous. Now John uses a Greek word here that I think is actually helpful, that I think sheds some light on what he's getting at. It's the word seed in verse 9. Seed. The Greek word seed is the word sperma. We just... Sang a song and used the word ass, and now we're talking about sperma at church. Man, we're in all kinds of trouble. It's where we get the Greek, or sorry, the English word sperm from, though. Sperma from Greek, because literally it is the sperm that is the seed that fertilizes the egg in sexual reproduction, and that seed carries with it the genetic uh, DNA of the father that gives to the child its unique. DNA. And so you can see why John uses the word sperma and then goes on to talk about being born of God. This is a sort of poetic play on words here. You are born of God by the sperma, the seed of God himself. Now the point is that someone who has truly trusted Christ for the forgiveness of sins has surrendered their will to his will has committed themselves to walking the way of Jesus, they've been implanted with the seed of God, and that seed makes them a child of God. Now look, don't take John's illustration too far. We're not talking literally about some weird spiritual, sexual union between God and man. That's not the case. We are simply saying that when you give your life to Jesus, you die And he gives you a new life, his life, a new birth, spiritual birth into his everlasting kingdom. Where the very life of Christ becomes now your new spiritual DNA through the spirit of God alive in you. And the reason why you cannot practice sin as a Christian born of God has nothing to do with you really. It has to do with the fact that you are a new creation. And Christ, his life, his DNA, his character now defines you. You've been given a fundamentally new identity, born again. The way that Paul says it is that your old self dies. That self that was once under the authority of sin is now dead and buried. And in its place, a new birth has taken place, new life, a godly life. And because it's Christ's life in you, it has built into it an aversion for sin, a hatred for sin, a built-in drive for holiness, a built-in sense of joy in serving and pleasing God. Because that's who Christ was. That's who Christ is. And it's his seed growing in you. The word seed is so rich in the biblical text. Uh, It goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis, Genesis 15. This promise that God made to Abraham where Abraham was told that his seed, his offspring, would bless the world. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16 that that promise was the promise of Christ. Christ would be the seed, the offspring of Abraham who would bless all nations. And he blesses the world by placing his life-giving seed in the hearts of everyone who believes in him. The blessing is not material, it's spiritual. And because of this seed planted in the hearts of those who believe, again, we are a new creation. A fundamentally new person. Now again, John has already explained that we will sin as Christians. But now he's helping us understand that when we do sin, we are acting against our nature. Maybe you can think of it like this, kind of like a square block. I mean, imagine, you know, a three foot, four foot square block. If you wanted to, you tried hard enough, you could roll that square block. But it would be against its nature. right? I always wonder why these CrossFit people are flipping tires. Don't they know that they can just turn them and they'll roll? (laughs) Rolling a square is making a square function against its nature. You could put square tires on your car and with enough torque it would move but that's not the way it's supposed to be, right? You as a Christian, you can sin, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. When you do that, you are functioning against this new nature that God has given you. So we could say that a Christian cannot and will not have a settled character that is committed to sin. You might do acts of sin in disobedience to God. But you will never have a character that is bent on sin. And as this seed of God takes deeper root in your soul and flourishes in your life, it increasingly chokes out the old nature, the sin nature. Let me illustrate it with a picture that I came across. I hope you can see this. Can we put that up on the screen? Can you see what that is? In this picture, there's a tree, and the tree is covered by a vine that has grown up around it. And at this point in the growth, the vine is almost completely covering the tree. You can sort of see the tree through there, but at this point, it's mostly the vine on the outside. This is like the life of Christ in us. The old person that we used to be is like that tree underneath. It's still there to a degree, but it's being progressively consumed by the life of Jesus himself. As this vine grows and takes deeper root and becomes more vibrant, the shape of the tree as it was still exists, but it's becoming more and more defined by the vine on the outside. And that's how it should be. The goodness of Jesus choking out the sin of our flesh So that in time nothing remains except Christ in us. We want to be the kind of people who are now so covered in the joyful obedience of Jesus that when people see us, they say, That's Christ in you. Now look at verse 10 because John goes further. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. I want us to think about this word evident for a moment. Sometimes I find myself wondering, and you know, this comes up in pastoral ministry. I find myself wondering, is such and such a person actually a Christian? As Christians, we always want to be gracious. We always want to give people the benefit of the doubt. We always want to take a profession of faith at face value and believe it. I want to ex- I want to accept every claim that someone is a Christian because love hopes all things and love believes all things. But it shouldn't be hard to determine who is a Christian and who is not. That should not be difficult. I'm not suggesting that we be like overly judgmental, but John says the evidence of Christ in us should be evident, obvious, present. Someone once told me about an interesting thought experiment and they said, I'll share it with you. They said, if Christianity became illegal tomorrow, would there be enough evidence to convict you of breaking the law? If Christianity became illegal tomorrow and it was suddenly a crime to be a Christian and you were arrested for that crime and you were dragged before a judge and a jury and the prosecutor presented evidence to prove that you were a Christian to convict you of the crime of following Jesus, would there be sufficient evidence from the way that you live your life? Or would it be really hard? Might they say, in court you know this is a good person but I'm not sure they're a Christian this is a religious person but I'm not sure they're a Christian I think John would boldly say to some people today I am quite certain that you are not a Christian because I cannot see any evidence in your life that you love Jesus that's intense that's really intense I can tell you that if I as a pastor said that to somebody in pastoral counseling, more than likely, they wouldn't come back. My guess is if you tried to say it, you would be called judgmental and self-righteous, which is probably a defensive response that proves that your claim just might be true. Friends, in pastoral ministry, one of the things that breaks my heart the most, up there in the top three, is Christians who have no evidence that they actually love Jesus. I think that's an oxymoron. Christians who lack fruit to prove that the seed of God is in them. Like John told us last week, let no one deceive you as Christ is righteous so also his people will be righteous. That's verse 7. And John says essentially the same thing here. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, this verse here does answer for us a very important question. What specifically does the seed of christ look like in us wouldn't that be important for you to know he says it looks like practicing the righteousness of god and loving our brothers and sisters since jesus said if you love me you will obey my commands we might rephrase it like this the proof of the seed in us looks like obedient love for god And humble love for other people. I want to explain this in detail by actually kind of going back a step. The word that we just looked at, evident, it shows up in two other really interesting places. Um, This is the part of my sermon where I begin to feel anxious that I'm getting long. But we need to cover this. Stick with me. It's cold enough in here that it's hard to not pay attention because we're freezing. All right, this is the Greek word phaneros. It pops up in Galatians 5.19, and I'd like you to turn there with me. Galatians 5.19. I think this will be worth it. If you've spent much time in your Bible, you know Galatians 5, I'm sure, the fruit of the Spirit. But look at verse 19. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. There it is. There's our word, phoneros. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The evidence of a bad life is pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, the Spirit of God speaks quite clearly in these verses that the fruit of an evil life alienated from God, cut off from the Spirit, is obvious. The evidence is clear. And sadly, many of these words show up in churches today. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. My dad was a pastor until he quit because of a church that sounded just like that. And there should be none of that present in the church. Because those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now keep reading because we get a powerful contrast to the evidence of the flesh in the evidence of the spirit. Verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit is also evident. I added that word, but it is evident, isn't it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. The evidence of the Spirit is proven in these characteristics. This is what righteousness practiced looks like practically in the life of a Christian. Not that we do these things, but that the Spirit is doing them through us, in us. This is evidence that would make it impossible to deny that the seed of God, the life of God, is in you. Now again, we're not talking about a perfect, sinless life. We're just talking about the kind of life that we steadily, progressively walk in as Christians. Naturally, Because it's Christ in us. But I want to show you another passage where this word comes up. 1 Corinthians 11. Please, one more. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 19. I find this passage absolutely fascinating. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is dealing with problems in the church, conflicts in the church. And I'm not going to go into specifics about those problems. I only want to show you that this word phaneros, the word evident, the same one we were looking at in 1 John, shows up here. Verse 17, Paul writes, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it's not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place... When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. That's one of our words from the contrast to the fruit of the Spirit, divisiveness. There's divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you. Why? In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now you probably didn't hear the word evident because in these verses it's translated a little bit different. It's that last word in the ESV that I read, recognized. Here's what I want you to understand here. When there are issues and divisions in the church, Paul says that's when we get to see the real proof of the Spirit of God. Who the spiritual children of God really are. I think the teaching of verses 18 and 19 here is that God allows divisions within the body of Christ so that we can really clearly see who the children of God are in the way that they respond. When a fight begins to brew in the household of God, the children of the devil, they throw gas on that fire. They revel in it. They stir up dissension. They look for rivalries and envy and anger and strife. They lie, they gossip, they wreak havoc among the sheep in cruelty, bringing shame on the name of Jesus. And when they don't get their way, they leave. And we recognize them for who they are. They went out from among us because they weren't from us, John says. They didn't have the seed of God in them or they wouldn't have been able to practice sin like they do and wound the children of God. Meanwhile, Those who are in Christ, they just steadily plod on. They are gentle. They are lowly. They remain kind and patient. They they don't get angry. If they do get angry, though, it's not personal anger at their own suffering. It's at what has taken place to harm the body of Christ, to wound his bride. And in the midst of conflict in the church... The real fruit of a person's heart becomes evident. And those who respond like Christ prove they are children of God. They are reasonable. And if they weep, it's because they're mourning for the pain that the bride is suffering, not for themselves. Okay, going back to 1 John then. Here's my point. It is evident who the children of God are. Because they actually look like Jesus. They look like Him not because they are special, but because the seed of Christ is in them. Friends, my prayer for our church is that we, every single one of us, are born of God. That we're not trying to be something we're not, pretending we're Christians. But we are born of the Spirit of God. And because we are born of God, we produce an abundance of evidence that we belong to God. His seed is in us. The Spirit is bearing fruit. We are connected to this vine. We are becoming more like the image of Christ himself. So may his image in us be daily evident in the way that we love God. And the way that we love others.